0: What an exciting opportunity it is to come together for worship. It's good to see each and everyone here today, and as was mentioned earlier today, not only in prayer but in our announcements, it is truly a delight that we have to wear the name Christian and to be able to gather as we are today. The Pippin congregation is always such that we're certainly excited to see our members and also visitors that come our way. And it's our goal, of course, to be that New Testament congregation off which the New Testament speaks with such positive glory and power. Today, as we come to this part of our worship, may I invite you to consider with me a text from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 16.25 was read in our hearing just a moment ago, and if you would revisit that with me, that'll be the sole focus of our lesson this morning. There is a way that seemeth right. You may notice on this opening slide this set of introductory remarks that follow. Isn't it true that this is the Thanksgiving season? And many of us have commented even today about the opportunity that's been ours and days recent to enjoy the blessings of God in terms of food or perhaps gathering with family. But in all those ways, of course, we noted last Sunday morning the sweetness and the greatness of many of God's blessings spiritually. Today, as we come to this lesson, I would ask that we consider a powerful attribute of the fact of John 17, 17 to begin. Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth, and aren't you thankful for truth? For that which doesn't rely upon the appreciation of men. Men's thinkings often change. They often are directed by virtue of culture or the sense of the way things are. But God's word doesn't change. Would you study with me this morning, then, based on that Proverbs 16 passage? There is a way that seemeth right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. I'm sure that verse, among many others in the book of Proverbs, has frequently been a source of intense consideration. Would you consider it with me today? What exactly does that verse say? And what might be some applications, or at least some matters, That would touch our consideration even this morning. First of all, let's take a few of the words one at a time. There is a way. You notice with me as you look at some of these comments that original word that's translated way literally means a course, a roadway. It has to do, quite frankly, with a journey. You and I can find many instances in the Old Testament in which that word was used to describe a literal trek or path that someone made as they journeyed from one location to another. But may I invite you to notice rather quickly, it is very, very often used in a figurative way to describe the behavior and the conduct of a person or of a group of people. Perhaps case in point, As you think about some of the Old Testament usages, about the middle of that slide, would you note this with me? Here are two particular examples. And notice again the word way is what I would invite you to consider. In Genesis chapter 6, when the description was given about the days of Noah, what was it that was said about the way in which people were living? It says, they had corrupted their way. And there's that same word again. There's a way that seemeth right to a man. Those individuals living in the days of Noah, as we often have perhaps pondered and wondered, they didn't perceive any difficulties or challenges or in fact anything amiss, and yet there was a way that was right to a man. But the end thereof were the ways of death. The way that had been selected and chosen, that course that was being followed in terms of moral character and behavior, it was a way leading to death. Notice this other example, taken from Psalm 1, verse number 1. There it says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners. There's the word way again. And one more time, you'll notice the reference in these two passages has been a corrupted way, a way that was improper, a way that was opposed to the things of God. But would you notice... There's another kind of way that's referenced in the Bible. And whereas those first examples we noted were in the way of wickedness or the way opposed to God, what about the sweetness of these ways that in fact are beautiful? In Psalm 1 verse 6, "...the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous." Now, we noted verse 1 in that passage a moment ago, so there was the way of sinners on the one hand and there was the way of the righteous on the other which road am I and you following? Which trek would be characteristic of your life and mine? Look at another example in Matthew 21, 32. Jesus made reference to the way on that occasion. And one more time, it was a good way. Finally, in 2 Peter 2, 21 a rather haunting passage in many ways in which the description is given here about those who knew the way of righteousness. What kind of way was it? The way of righteousness, and they knew it. Today, aren't you and I thankful that we too know that? Continuing on that slide with me, look at the next segment in that passage before us. So there's a way that seemeth right unto a man. As I studied that, I found the presentation of it a bit intriguing. For the literal Hebrew word that has reference to a man has the appearance of his face, his front, that which upon his initial appearance looks to be appropriate. It has every semblance of being reasonable, every reason to consider it plausible. It looks as though it's right. But you may notice... The additional words that really form the background of that Hebrew word carries the thought of, remember, originally the word way referred to a row that was level and smooth. Here, that it's to say that it appears right is to say it appears in the way of discernment. It appears as if, one more time, it is really the way to go. The verse then really does carry with it the sense of what you and I have often noted so readily. There's a way that seems right to a man. But as you and I know, there's much more to be said about that passage. Look at some of these further developments with me. In Proverbs 11 verse 5, that same word that's here translated as right has to do with the characteristic of those that are blameless. In other words, it appears to be the moral thing to do. You and I know in our modern day, there's a great confusion about morality in the mind of many people. What's right and what's wrong? Well, here there's a way that seems right to a man. It appears to be the moral thing, the ethical thing perhaps to consider. But as you and I look further, Habakkuk 2.4 four quickly reminds us that the reckless are not upright like this describes. That word, there's a way that seems right to a man. The Hebrew word also means to be upright, as identified by God. It is with that in mind, then we come to that next statement, but the end thereof. That word end has to do with the afterpart, the aftermath the consequence of, that which is the conclusion and the result of this particular course. Think again with me about this journey. If you think about that word way in relation to a literal pathway or perhaps means of locomotion, the destination then would appear to be good and right, but the end thereof. You may notice these additional passages That word end that is used so often in the Old Testament particularly, sometimes that end is very good, but sometimes it's not. And I listed them in this order. It can be very bad. In Proverbs 5 verse number 4, it has to do there with the concourse of a particular piece of advice. The wise man would say to his son, Son, be wary of that harlot. That woman who speaks with such enticing words, her character, her behavior, her attire is not becoming of what it ought to be. Her end is death. She won't lead you anywhere good. Not only that, notice in Jeremiah 5.31, Here are the people of Israel. God basically of them said this, The prophets prophesy falsely, the priests bear rule by their means, and my people love to have it so, and what shall be the end thereof? In other words, what's going to be the consequence of this? My people love falsehood, they love to do what's not right. What do you think the end is going to be? It won't be good. But on the other hand, sometimes the end is really good. For instance, in Micah 4 verse 1, As the prophet looked down the stream of time, he could in fact look forward to the day that Jesus was coming and he says, that will be a beautiful end. It will be an end that's right. And an end, of course, that will be a blessing to all people. It might well be in light of those comments. Let's close our verse then with this final statement. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. This reference, as you can see, is literally to dying. There is no concealing it. There's no hiding And it's not as if there's an ulterior meaning to the word. As often in the Old Testament as reference to death is made, that's the same word that's here. It's a way that looks wholesome and good. But my friend, the consequence of it is death. Now that's a staggering thought, isn't it? It's rather stunning in its character. You may notice in Isaiah 53, 12, that same word that's here referred to as death is there interpreted in a way to refer to the dying of Jesus on the cross. In Jeremiah 26, 11 and following, it was the plea of many of that day that Jeremiah was worthy to die. And it's the same Hebrew word. And so this way, as you can see at the bottom, This course of action, this conduct, this behavior that upon first appearance looks so inviting and looks so appealing and it even looks to be right. It isn't. For its consequence is death. The end result is dying. Now those words are chilling in some respects because doesn't it remind us in a rather direct means of warning, you can't trust just your opinion. When it comes to matters of truth and matters of right standing before God, human emotion is no guide whatsoever. It is no guide whatsoever. And so it is, as you and I close that slide, let's use that as the prompting thought for the remainder of the lesson as we look at some applications of these things. Are there ways in which you can consider, as well as I, that circumstances are such that people do wish to trust that way that seems right to them. Well, you and I know again how thankful we are for the Word of God, and let's make this initial application. I chose to put it beneath the heading of feelings, because you and I know that's such a commonly employed term and a word that seemingly is so often used as the foundation for action and the foundation... For decision, Let's begin it like this. Those emotional responses to events, you and I often call them feelings, and yet in light of them, they sometimes are utilized as the principle, almost the exclusive determining factor for action. I do this because it feels right. I do this because I, in my heart I feel as if it's the right thing to do. There ain't any of us that would besmirch the importance of feelings in the sense that they're a strong part of who we are as individuals. But the question comes, are those feelings in and of themselves a proper foundation for the making of spiritual decisions? You might notice Many times the descriptions that go with those things are great elements in earnestness and fortitude and even notable characteristics otherwise. A person may be earnest. They may be very hardworking. They may in fact be individuals who themselves have sacrificed notably. And yet often they make these statements that I feel. In light of those things, let's notice some verses, would you? We've already learned today, there is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. That course which appears to be right, and that course which upon first observation perhaps looks to be appropriate, turns out not to be. That warning was rather powerfully given a moment ago as we studied from Proverbs 16.25. It is very significant it seems that that identical verse is found two chapters earlier as well in Proverbs 14, verse 12. Two times in Holy Scripture that particular matter is repeated. With that, might I ask you to note Jeremiah seventeen nine. Now this occurred a bit later in Old Testament history, but please note the warning with me. And oh, how serious it was for the folks of that day. "...as God directly addressed the children of Israel, it was to them He said, "'The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it?' not it interesting that the children of Israel, as Babylonian captivity loomed shortly in their future, here was a circumstance in which God says their heart had been deceived. The heart is deceitful above all wicked, it is deceitful above all things." That deceit, that consideration, of course, means that emotional response is not a basis for decision. And yet with that, notice the second verse in Romans 121. Wasn't it true on that occasion that we notice that as the Gentiles were under description, we find that circumstance in which they had allowed their hearts to be deceived. And because of that, they had acted in a way that denied the Creator and gave attention to the creature instead. Isn't it interesting and isn't it rather chilling to notice that as that took place, God says they had become vain in their imaginations. The heart wasn't trustworthy. Aren't you thankful that we do have a trustworthy guide? When God thus declares and when He proclaims and when He asserts, then that settles any matter and one isn't left to rest only upon impression or feeling. You might notice in addition to that, examples from the Word of God assist us as we contemplate this. Would you reflect with me on the man named Abraham for a moment? In the book of Genesis, we read about a gentleman named Abraham who, in chapter 12, God directed him to leave the land of his fathers and to go to a place that he would be shown. Abraham dutifully followed that commandment, and as he ultimately arrived, we learn this in chapter 15, God had promised him that he would be the father of a multitude of nations. But isn't it fascinating? He and his wife were barren at that time. They didn't have any children. Abraham was age 75 when he was first called. Eleven years passed. He still didn't have any children, but now he was 86. His wife was 76. No doubt there were many questions beginning to be asked. What about the fulfillment of God's promise? And Sarah, together with Abraham, had a, a device, a plan, whereby they could offer assistance to that promise of God. We well remember this, that the idea was this Abraham, go into Hagar, my handmaid, and thus the seed that you will bear of her shall be this which shall, in fact, be the fulfillment of God's promise. Abraham complied, and as that unfolded, we remember Ishmael was born. Abraham was 86 years old at the time. And God, of course, rather rapidly came unto him and said, This is not the Son of Promise. Now, would you pause with me and notice that looked to be the right thing to Abraham and Sarah. It looked to be an appropriate device. It looked to be reasonable unto them to assist even in the spiritual fulfillment of the promises that God had made. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man but the end thereof are the ways of death. That was not the plan of God. In fact, God rather quickly affirmed then that Ishmael's not the son of promise, but you and your wife, Sarah, shall have a son. Isn't it still fascinating that 14 more years would pass? 14 more years would pass before Isaac was born. You and I noticed that way that had been concocted, that scheme that had been devised... It was a way that brought about so much hurtfulness in many ways. There's a way that seems right. Look furthermore at this. What thus is right by the impression of the human family often falls so short. And it fails because its end is death. What about some additional applications or considerations in these ways? As we close that slide, might I mention Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. Now please remember, as we think about religious applications, that'll be the focus of the next few moments. Remember, that way that we described earlier in the lesson this morning, that way often had the appearance of uprightness. It had the appearance of appropriateness and even right standing with God, but yet its end was death. So it really wasn't what it appeared to be. Wasn't it true in Romans 10? Paul made this rather compelling statement. As he spoke about the earnestness and the seriousness that had described the children of Israel and even the Jewish family, he said, My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Packed among those statements, there in Romans 10 verses 1 to 3 is this, Here were a group of individuals who themselves were zealous, enthusiastic, eager, and interested in the things that were spiritual in character, but Paul says they're misdirected. They have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. And may I say that that is... Case in point of that text we've been studying. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. With that, then, let's look at these additional examples. And so, what should we say about the application of this principle to things particularly related to the church? Things particularly related to worship services and otherwise. It isn't enough to say that I feel as if this is right, or I feel as if this is appropriate. That kind of approach may well have an end of death. We don't need to rely upon a way that just seems to be right to a man. But we want a way that's told to be right by virtue of God. And so, as we start this slide, the details of the church and even those matters particular to worship are exceedingly vital. And it isn't enough, nor has it ever been, for that to rest upon the appearances of men. As you consider some of those with me, let's pause to ponder for a moment about this matter. Worship is so vital and there's a sense in the part of man in which that's a natural thing. We're made, it would seem, in a way to respect the nature and the character of worship. The question becomes, will that be a worship that's rightly directed? Turning back to Genesis chapter 4 with me, Isn't it true that there Cain and Abel brought of things unto God? Here in the very dawning of time, we appreciate that as they brought these things, it still forever stands that the following is to be noted. Abel's sacrifice was accepted, Cain's was not. The mere fact that each brought something was it by itself a guarantee that God would accept it. You see, there's a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Do you suppose if you had asked Cain prior to the time of the offering, did he suppose that God would accept it? It seems reasonable that he would have said yes or else he wouldn't have brought it. But yet God didn't accept it. Merely the appearance of it was not sufficient. Not only that, consider those unforgettable words of our Savior in Matthew 15. In verses 7, 8, and 9 of that chapter, as Himself Jesus was questioned about the nature of worship and the particulars of it. He quoted from the Old Testament, This people honoreth me with their mouth, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Isn't it true, then, that Jesus Himself asserted that those who follow the doctrines of men in light of their worship is such that that worship has become vain. It has become empty in essence. It has become such that God isn't pleased with it. May I again ask that we notice there is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. In light of our worship, we can make some immediate applications. You and I know well that some of the matters that have brought much discussion in the history of the church surround the topic of the music of the church. The church loves music, but music as God has commanded, and music as is described in in the New Testament. Therein lies the question, what kind of music? Would God be pleased if, in fact, we employed a mechanical instrument along with our singing? Would that be satisfactory to him? Many throughout the ages, I suppose, have asserted that there isn't anything improper about that. It's absolutely in agreement to the things of God. Are you hearing in the recesses of your mind that text in Proverbs 16 again? There's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. If we could ask Abel, if we could ask Cain, how do you suppose they would help us understand this? One needs positive authorization from God. It's not enough to suppose it's okay. It isn't enough to suppose that it's all right in our viewpoint. Look with me at some of these verses. In Isaiah 1, verses 11 and following, description is given of worship among the children of Israel. And as that description is given we find God rather hauntingly say, I've had enough of this. He didn't like their worship anymore. Question, does God then like all worship, no matter how it's formed or framed or offered? He didn't like Israel's worship at that time. They had assembled in such a way that they, in fact, were offering their sacrifices, but there were problems and issues, and God said, I've had enough of this as you and I know from consideration of points like that one. That particular matter of God challenges us even today, doesn't it? How humbly, how meekly, and how seriously. It's our desire to reverently approach God as He has informed us. In worship, we don't worship ourselves. It doesn't matter what you and I prefer. It doesn't matter what we like. It matters what God has said He wants. Notice this verse with me. In 2 Chronicles 26, verses 16 and following, the record is given about a person who was overwhelmingly motivated. His name was Uzziah. He was the king at the time. He wanted so much to offer before God, and so he rather presumptuously took upon him the particular matters of the sacrifice and went in before and offered it. The problem is he wasn't authorized to do it. He was stricken with leprosy. Doesn't that chill us as we think about merely having an earnestness and a sincerity and a desire is not a guarantee? Because isn't it still true? There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. As we continue on our journey through that slide, I would ask you to consider with me a number of verses as we come near its base or bottom in Ephesians five nineteen, we do have God telling us expressly what He likes and what He wants as we contemplate the music of our worship. We've joyously lifted our voices together today and we've hymned these songs and hymns and spiritual songs today, together. And as we've done that, we have spoken to ourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. We played the instrument of our heart. We, in fact, moved our mouth and tongues and the other aspects spoken of in the Word of God, and we did so out of great adoration and praise for God. As we have done all of that, we have followed those commandments that the Lord Himself has delivered us. Might I ask you to notice in the Colossians passage especially, we have an overwhelming description given about that music. That is so refined and so desirable to God. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. At that point, we notice this, the Word of Christ that motivates and compels us to do those things that we do. And as it dwells within us, He says, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. At that point, you'll notice those things that are sung. Have as their goal that admonishment, that teaching. In the final analysis, in Hebrews 2, verse 12, it says, In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. Today, as we think at least about that aspect of our worship, the significance must not go understated. And with it, we note that some other forms and aspects of the church are also worthy of some consideration. Look with me at the top of this slide. One of the other features that has continued to be a matter of some discussion has to do with the other framework of what the church upholds. It's not just a matter of its worship. What about particulars and other means and choices? Female leadership, whether it be in terms of an elder, in terms of preacher in terms of a teacher in various and sundry ways of mixed classes or otherwise, those features are becoming rather prominent. At least they're becoming somewhat more common. With it, the question again must be this, What saith the Scripture? Because isn't it true there is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Some of those opening comments are these, As you contemplate this one particular aspect, there's no question that there are many women who are talented speakers, very bright and intelligent. In many ways, that's beside the point. When it comes to things such as preaching, and when it comes to matters such as the leading in some way of worship, we aren't left to our devices. We aren't left to try and discuss or figure this out. The Word of God has declared. And all of the discussions and all the presentations doesn't change what God's Word has said. Maybe it is in regard to that that this passage in 1 Corinthians 14, 34, as well as the one in 1 Timothy 2. That 1 Timothy 2 passage in particular, as we have noted so often, has to do with that particular presentation of worship. Paul described there, did he not? I will that men everywhere lift up holy hands unto God and the Father. And you'll notice in verses 8 and following, as that statement was made, there are different Greek words. And the one that the Holy Spirit chose to use through Paul was that word specifically referring to a male. It's not the human family in general. It's the male of the species. Men are the ones then that have been honored by God to carry forth that role. As you and I give thought to it again, aren't we hearing in the background as various and sundry changes continue to appear throughout the nature of the church? There's a way that seemeth right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. We aren't at liberty to change the Word of God or attempt to change it. It might well be. We could ask as we come near the close of our lesson about the eldership. You probably are aware that there are many places who've begun to even question the existence of an eldership. They perhaps reason as follows, we've made it fine and I think we could without an eldership. Why do we need them? Maybe you've had conversations with individuals who feel so. Otherwise, other descriptions are given about the qualifications. Maybe that one's not so important. I don't think that one's as significant as the other ones. May I say to all of us, when it comes to those qualifications or even the existence of the eldership, there is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. We aren't left to our devices to try and alter or augment or remove or change those qualifications or even to question the existence of them. God's Word has declared. All these ways that men have offered Men, no doubt, many times have presumed that they're good suggestions, and their suppositions, no doubt, have been made with the finest of honesty. That doesn't change the fact that any suggestion that, in fact, militates against the Word of God is guaranteed to end in death. It's guaranteed to end in hurtfulness here, and if something isn't made right, the day of judgment will be worse. One could extend this listing by many times over as we think about particulars, but maybe we have said enough to bring us to this concluding slide today. The message of Proverbs sixteen twenty five continues unaltered and unchanged. As Solomon penned that centuries ago, there is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. One by one, we've only looked at a brief sampling of some of the modern applications that might be drawn from it. But there's a dire warning. In Matthew 19:4, Jesus, the first question He asked of them when they posed that rather controversial question to Him is, Have you not read? Oh, how we must return to the Word of God for the answers to the questions that we're asking ourselves to consider. And in Romans 4, verse 3, what saith the Scripture." Today, as we've reminded ourselves about the seriousness of that warning in Proverbs 16, may I ask that we make application, in this final invitation at least, to the invitation itself. So what must I do to be a Christian? What must I do to live faithfully? Is that left to me, to you, to figure out? Aren't you thankful the answer is no? for there's a way that would look right to me or that would appear reasonable to you or someone else, and yet it's the way that leads to death. There is a way that is delivered by God. It's that plan of salvation by which a person can become a Christian, and in so doing, they can then live faithfully till death following the words of the the New Testament. And at that point, they'll be able to die in the Lord. Today, if there would be anybody in the audience who hasn't become a Christian, or who perhaps has become wayward, you haven't remained true and faithful to that, initial call, to that initial calling, please consider with urgency the circumstance of your life. If we could help you become a Christian, the Word of God commands you believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. And we'd be delighted to assist you today. If you have become a member of the body of Christ... You've tasted the good Word of God in the words of Hebrews 6, verse 4, but you have faltered from that faithfulness. Why not today come back to your first love? Don't rely upon the way that looks right to men. For remember, that will lead to death. Trust in the Lord. And today, if we could pray to God on your behalf, we'd be delighted to do that. The invitation is extended. If anyone would wish to come, why not do it now? Well, together we stand and sing.